And our first reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 23, verses 1 to 13. And that's page 211. A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua was old, getting on in years. So Joshua summoned all Israel, including its elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and said to them, I am old, getting on in years, and you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting with you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including all the nations I have destroyed, from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not worship them or bow down to them. Instead, remain faithful to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you, and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you rooted a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you, as he promised. So be very diligent to love the Lord your God for your own well-being. For if you turn away and cling to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a scourge for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Continue reading in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through to 38, page 1025. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews, and that I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching it to you in public and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, 
except that in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I count my life of no value to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of everyone's blood. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed to you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that those ha these hands have provided for my needs and for those who were with me. In every way I've shown you that my, by labouring like this, it's necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, for he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There was a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most of, of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they escorted him to the ship. Nice to see you tonight. My name is Paul. If we haven't met, uh, we're in Acts uh, chapter 20. Uh, this is a quite a hard sermon for me to preach tonight. Um, not hard because the Bible is hard, but it's hard because it's actually a sermon about what it means to be a pastor. Uh, so Paul is gathering all the pastors, all the leaders, all the elders of this church in Ephesus. And before he leaves them, he wants to give them some advice on what it really means to be a pastor. And so in many ways, I feel like I'm under this sort of spotlight tonight with everyone going, well, is Paul like this? I feel like as I'm preaching, you're in your heart, you're evaluating me and saying, well, is our pastor like that? Uh, but what I want you to do as I preach tonight, I want you to think, do you pray for your pastors to be like this? Do you long for me, Dan, Andy, Sarah, Coralie, Naomi, all our leaders at church, do, do you long for them to be men and women like this? Do you ever pray for us? We, we, we crave your prayers. We'd long for you to pray for us. And as I preach tonight, I, I want you to think, you know, when it's time for me to leave this church, surely you want another senior pastor who is, is like this. Not a, a pastor or a person who is uh, evaluated by the world standards of successful, but by the Bible standards of what it means to be a pastor of God's church. I want to introduce you tonight to two men who I describe as model 
pastors. They're two of my heroes, if you want. This strange guy on the left is a guy called Richard Baxter. Anyone heard of him? No? Justin has. Uh, Richard Baxter lived in the 1600s in a place called Kidderminster in the UK. I'm guessing if you've visited the UK, you've never been to Kidderminster. There's nothing there apart from carpet factories. Uh, but this guy was a pastor of a church there, and he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. It's still in print 350 years later. Just so you get insight to this guy's life, he had a, a heart for people. He had 800 families in his parish and his desire, his heart was to visit each one of them at least once a year. He visited up to 14 families per week. Uh, he invited him, himself into your home and over a cup of tea he'd sit with the Bible open and he'd pray with you, he'd read the scriptures with you, he'd ask you about your spiritual life, he cared for you. He had a, heart, had a pastor's heart. He wasn't just a pastor, he was a preacher. He preached bold, uh, powerful sermons that engaged your mind, engaged your heart. And he was an evangelist. Uh, Jim Packer said about Richard Baxter, he converted almost the entire city of Kidderminster. So his church held a thousand people. During his 15 years in this parish, they had to build five balconies to fit in all the people that wanted to come to church. I'll quote Richard Baxter himself. On the Lord's Day, there was no disorder to be seen in the streets of Kidderminster. But you might hear a hundred families singing psalms and repeating sermons as you pass through the streets. In a word, when I came to Kidderminster, there was about one family in each street that worshipped God and called on his name. When I came away from that place, there were some streets where there was not more than one family that did not worship God. An amazing man, a heart for people, a pastor and a preacher and an evangelist. And God's church needs more men like Richard Baxter. Who's this other man? John Stott. Uh, John Stott was the rector of All Souls Langham Place in London. He, he died in July 2011. He was listed by Time magazine in what being one of the, the top 100 most influential men of history. He's a man of prayer, an evangelist, a preacher. Uh, he almost transformed preaching in the UK. He introduced what's called expository preaching, where you, you work through books of the Bible. But he was a pastor. He loved people. He knew most of his flock by name. It was said of John Stott. He was convinced that as a pastor he needed to know his people and understand the congregation that God had entrusted to him. He visited homes, he did follow-up inquiries, and he once even disguised himself as a homeless person and slept on the streets because a, man, a homeless man had walked into the church and he wanted to find out what it was like. And like one of his mentors, Charles Simeon of Cambridge, Dr. Stott turned down endless opportunity for advancements in the Church of England hierarchy. 
and he chose to remain at the same church throughout his ministry. To those who met him, respect and affection would go hand in hand. Yes, he was a world figure, but he was the most humble man you'd ever met. He thought of himself as all Christians should, but few of us achieve. He thought of himself simply as a beloved child of a heavenly father, an unworthy servant of his friend and master Jesus Christ, and a sinner saved by grace to the glory and praise of God. I met him once, just once. He was the most humble man. And God's church needs more men like him, don't they? God's church needs more godly men and women, people of integrity and transparency, and just people who want to humbly serve Jesus and are not in it for the public praise and adoration. God's church needs more pastors and preachers marked by humility, integrity, transparency. God's church needs less superstars. God's church needs less what I call platform-seeking performers who just want the adoration of the fans. And God's church needs more men and women who just want to humbly and faithfully get on with pastoring the flock that's been entrusted to them. A few years ago, the Church of England commissioned a report on the the spiritual health of the churches in England. They spent millions of pounds on this report. Their biggest finding was this. It's not rocket science. The spiritually healthy churches had a spiritually healthy leader. When a leader is healthy, the church follows suit. And the most godless, wayward, chaotic churches were led by men and women who were spiritually dry and burnt out. So I'm going to ask you this morning, this evening, do do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for your leaders that we be men and women like Acts chapter 20? This is the, the farewell speech to the church in Ephesus. And Paul uses three different words for leaders. He uses the, the presbyter word, the priest word. He uses the, the bishop word, the episcopos word. He uses the shepherding word, the pastoring words. And, and every church needs pastors and leaders and elders and presbyters. Now, now, what is the job of a shepherd? To look after the, the sheep. And it's not flattering, but that's how the Bible describes you and me as Christians. We are, we are sheep. We're God's sheep. And when you think of sheep, please don't just think the cute, cuddly animals. When you think of sheep, think, well, sheep sometimes get dirty. And sheep sometimes wander. And sheep sometimes get, get stuck with diseases like ticks and lice and worms. And they're good dipping. And sheep can be very stubborn. And the job of the shepherd is to care for and tend and pastor and cuddle and comfort and correct God's sheep. Let's meet the pastor, the portrait of a pastor. I hope you want a man of humility, a humble person, 
someone, uh, someone wants to ask uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, an early church father, uh, what, what are the, the, the three top Christian virtues? How would you answer that? What are the top three Christian virtues? He said number one is humility. Number two is humility. And number three is humility. And that was the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul is an intelligent, gifted, able, successful, the most successful church planter in history. And now read verse 18 and 19. He says, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. And I served the Lord with all humility. It wasn't about me, he says. It's about serving my Savior. I love that phrase, serving the Lord Jesus. That's, that's the role of a pastor, isn't it? Not to serve themselves, but to serve Jesus. Not to sell themselves, but to sell Jesus. You, you could bet that the Apostle Paul was not selling his name, his fame, his glory, his books, his CDs, his church planting strategies. He's just serving Jesus. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to, but to serve. Do you remember that picture of Jesus where he's, the Son of God is kneeling down and he is washing dirty feet. That's the humble servant. Now don't you want your pastor to be like that? Not somebody's, but just humble servants. And then they're just serving God's flock. Verse 28 is such a key verse for this passage. Look at it with me. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the sheep, all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which God purchased with God's own blood. That's the key to humility. This is not my church. This is God's church. You're not my flock. You're God's flock. I'm not the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. I didn't buy you, but Jesus did. And he bought you with his own costly, precious blood. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. Isn't that what you want for your pastors? Not, not proud peacocks who strut around as their somebodies, but just a humble man, a humble woman, serving their saviour. It will be liberating for this church if you've got humble leaders. Because humble leaders are not distracted by adulation or envy. And humble leaders are not distracted by promotions and popularity and diocesan committees they can join. The humble leader just wants to faithfully, humbly serve the flock that they've been given. A man of humility, a man of transparency. You spot those two words in verse 18. They're important words. Verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, you know. He gathers the people, he says, you know. 
You know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. You know I serve the Lord with humility. You know my tears, verse 19. You know my trials, verse 19. You know, verse 20, I didn't shrink back from proclaiming to you anything that was profitable. He says, you know, because I've lived among you. I wasn't a professional pastor. I was a real man who got alongside you. I wasn't distant. I wasn't untouchable. I was vulnerable. I was transparent. I love the fact in verse 19, he says, I I shared my trials. I shared my trials with you. You you know the times when I, I was persecuted. I told you about it. You know the times I suffered because I was open with you about it. You know the times I was disappointed with you because I told you. Now, friends, you don't want pastors who seem to have it all together, do you? Surely you don't want pastors who seem to have it, no struggles, no doubts, unshaken by trials. That's exhausting. And I love the fact in verse 20, that, verse 19 rather, that Paul shared his tears. And I love that because he's humble enough to admit that he spent time crying. Why? Why would a pastor cry? I'll tell you why. A pastor weeps at other people's pain. And a pastor weeps at other people's sufferings. And we weep when we see you wander from the flock. And we weep when you see that you're making dumb choices. And we weep at your discouragements and your disappointments. And we weep with you because we love you. And we weep tears of joy as well at the good times of life. Because that's what it means to be a transparent pastor who knows the flock. And we cry with you. So you want men of humility. You want men of transparency. You want men of the word, don't you? Verse 20. He says, I didn't shrink back. I didn't avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable. I didn't succumb to the temptation to to cut my message to avoid the hard parts of Scripture. I didn't avoid telling you hard truths from the Bible that would bring you back to God. I didn't shrink back from teaching to you in public and from house to house. And I love that. It's kind of saying, what what I say in the pulpit is what you get when I visit you for a cup of tea. In your house, in the marketplace, in church, in the synagogue, I'm just going to teach the message of grace. I'm going to open my Bible with you. I'm going to point you to Jesus. Don't you want that from your pastors? People who just teach you the word? Verse 27, he said, I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, the whole plan of God. There was nothing in the Bible I didn't teach you about. If your pastors are people pleasers, I can guarantee they will avoid certain parts of Scripture. They'll never talk about gender issues or sexuality issues. They won't talk about Jesus being the only way to God. They won't talk about church stuff because they're they're fearful they might offend you or upset you. But the role of, of a faithful pastor is to teach the whole counsel of God. You, you can't duck 
the issues in the Bible that are unpalatable. I hope that as the Bible is taught week in, week out, you sit there with your Bibles open, with your head in the Scriptures going, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And there's moments in church where you think, ouch, I don't like that. I hope that you are wise enough and mature enough to say, I don't like it, but the Bible says it. And because the Bible says it, I need to do it. I hope you pray for your pastors and your leaders that we would be men and women who handle God's word correctly. See, a false teacher will just say what people want to hear. And a false teacher just wants to be liked. And if you teach the whole counsel of God, believe me, you're never liked. Because you say things that are hard to say. So it's a, it's a man of humility, transparency, the word. A man and a of sacrifice. If, if I said to you tonight, how would you describe the Apostle Paul? What adjectives would you, would you use to describe his life? I'm hoping you wouldn't say, oh, he had a comfortable life. He had an easy life. He had a nice life. The Apostle Paul's life was marked by suffering and hardship and pain and sacrifice. Because that's part and parcel of ministry. Look at verse 22. Paul said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I'll encounter there. Except he does know this. In town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that the chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Look at verse 23 again. He does not say, in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that five-star hotels are waiting for me. He doesn't say, in town after town, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that business class flights and adorations of fans are waiting for me. He doesn't say that in town after town, a nice house in a nice suburb with a nice car and the best school for my kids are waiting for me, does he? He says, in town after town, chains, afflictions, prisons, hardships, trials, and sufferings await me. And I'm not being negative here. I'm just being realistic. If your pastors are preaching the whole counsel of God, they will face opposition. If we are preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, not everyone's going to like that. And if we're really caring for our sheep, it'll be hard work and costly work and sacrificial work and there'll be heartache and pain and accusations and hatred. That is part and parcel of pastoral ministry. I think over the past eight years, I have interviewed possibly 80 people for jobs on staff here. And do you know that point in the interview when you're being interviewed and the interviewer says to you, now have you got any questions for me? Do you know what's really saddened me? In the majority of cases, the first question they ask is, oh, what's the financial package? What's the house like? What's about schools for my kids? 
That really, really saddens me. Because if you want men and women who are going to be sacrificial, we're not in it for the perks. We're not in it for the money or the house or the schooling or the tax allowances. It's costly. It's hard. Verses 33 to 35 are really important. Paul says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. I'm not in it for the money. You yourselves know that these hands I have worked, I've labored, I've been a tent maker, I've provided for my own needs, and I've given away lots. Verse 35, in every way I've shown you by laboring like this, it's necessary to help the weak. And to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You want pastors who are givers, not getters. I've talked about John Stott tonight. Remember, he's listed in the top 100 most influential men in history. Where did he live? He was a single man all his life. He lived in a one-bedroom unit. That's all he needed. And he gave most of his money away. Men of humility, transparency, men of the word, men of watchfulness. That's our last point tonight. Good verse 28. Be on guard, be watchful, be alert, keep awake, he says. Verse 28. Be on guard for yourself. That's really important. He looks at the leaders, he looks at the elders, looks at the pastors and says, watch your own soul. Pay attention to your own spiritual life. If your leaders, if your pastors are neglectful of their own soul, it's no benefit to you, is it? Don't you want your pastors to nourish themselves? Don't you long for your pastors to look after their own spiritual life, to go to conferences, to take time out for personal Bible study and prayer, to, to read, to be accountable? If your leaders are spiritually dry and burnt out and doubting, it will be no benefit to you. And if your leaders are, are struggling with godliness or morality issues, that is disastrous for you. It is scary the number of pastors and leaders who I talk to and they tell me the only time in the week they open their Bibles is to prepare a sermon or to prepare a Bible study or to, or to give a talk. He looks at the pastor and says, watch your own soul. And then, verse 28, be watchful for the sheep, be watchful for the flock that's been entrusted to you. Because, verse 29 He knows that after his departure, savage wolves will come in from among you. Wolves will come in, and they will not spare the flock. They will destroy God's sheep. And then from within, verse 30, men will rise up from within your own number with deviant doctrines to lure. I love that word, lure. It's that kind of subtle dragging them away from Jesus. He says, be alert, verse 31. I've seen this time and time and time again at Church by the Bridge. It normally happens like this. Someone will come to me and says, oh, I picked up this great book in Kurong. I love what it said. 
And so I read it and I think, that is utter garbage. <laughs> it's not what the Bible says at all. But they fall in love with that author and then they podcast their talks and then they keep listening to more and more and more of this garbage. And before you know it, they're so far away from biblical truth and they're so far away from Jesus. And it's part of my job as a pastor and a leader of this church to, to warn you. To watch over you and say, no, no, that is wrong. Sometimes we have to say that, don't we? That is wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Oh, but Paul, you might offend people. I would rather offend people from the pulpit than watch them give up their faith and be distracted and lured away by wrong teaching. Don't you want men and women who care for you enough to point out when things are wrong? Oh, but Paul, this is Sydney. Every church is sound in Sydney. <laughs> really? Now, who is Paul speaking to here? The leaders of Ephesus. What a great city that was. They even had a letter written to them called the Ephesians. But go to the end of your Bibles in Revelation chapter 2. And the Apostle John is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And what does he say in, in Revelation 2? They've lost their first love. If you travel to Ephesus today, how many Bible teaching churches will you find in Ephesus? How many Christians will you find in Ephesus? Very, very few. So what happened to this thriving church? People were lured away by deviant doctrines. So I hope you pray for your leaders. You want men, of, men and women of humility, transparency, of the word, of sacrifice, of watchfulness. But I hope you just want people who live for Jesus. Verse 24 is a staggering, staggering verse. Paul said, I count my life of no value to myself. I don't live for me. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Here I am, all of me. I don't live my life for me. I just want to finish my race. I want to keep on trusting Jesus. I want to finish the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. I want to keep on preaching the gospel of grace. That's ultimately what you want, isn't it? Men and women who just live for Jesus. I'll finish with these words from John Stott. John, said this, John Stott said these words. Some people are a great trial to their pastors. But some pastors are a great trial to God's people. I know that's true, you know. Would you forgive me for the times I've been a trial to you? you forgive me for times where I haven't, I haven't been humble but I've been really really proud or for times when I've been guarded and haven't been transparent or for times when I haven't actually teached the word properly you know I've avoided saying things because I wanted to be liked <laughs> or for times when I've pastored this flock selfishly rather than just wanting to serve Jesus or for times when I've hurt you and disappointed you I do crave your prayers and prayers for me, Andy, Dan, Coralie, Sarah, Naomi, all our hive leaders. 
just want us to feed the flock that God's given us. To tend the flock, to care for the flock, to feed, comfort, carry, and just keep on pointing you to the great shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love this church and I love you, but there will be a time when I move on from this church. And I'd love verses 36 to 38 to be what it's like on that last day when I'm here. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There's a great deal of weeping by everyone. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most over all by his statement they would never see his face again. And I say that because I want us to be a family where you know me and I know you. And we just do life together. And we keep on pointing each other to our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I, I thank you for your church that you purchased with the blood of your son. Thank you, Father, that you love us, you care for us, you feed us, you comfort us. Please would you keep on raising up godly, humble, sacrificial, transparent men and women who just long to see your flock flourish. I ask that for Jesus' sake.